0: We're not going to do that. Um, these past two years, I'm not going to reiterate uh, what you already know. Just have been tough, and tough in the world. Have been tough in the church. And one of the things I've noticed as I've traveled and been in different church settings is um, a distinct lack of something that the church ought to be known for, and that is love. And while I usually preach on the wrath of God, this morning we're going to talk about the love of God, most particularly loving one another. I have seen churches at odds these past two years, people who've been longtime members getting angry. At one another and pulling up stakes and moving somewhere else, church fights, church splits it's been an atrocious testimony to who God is, and I believe brings shame to his name and so I want to remind us this morning uh, of what the word tells us about love, loving one another. you know um, I was a pastor for senior pastor for many years. I stepped down about five years ago to go full-time into what, uh, what our mi- ministry was in Africa. And uh, you all don't know this about me, but being a pastor is the last thing I ever considered. I grew up as a PK. If any of you know what a PK is, you'll know what a rough life I had. <laughs> uh, in short, I, I didn't want to be a pastor. My wife told me uh, shortly before we were married, you know, I, I don't want to marry a pastor, so don't don't even think about that. <laughs> it's too late now, but it wasn't until several years later that we were both called in into ministry, but I knew I had a problem. I didn't I didn't really have that kind of love. You see, the big problem with the church is people. <laughs> Quite honestly. And I, um, I just didn't have that kind of love. You know, the hardest thing about being a pastor, Dan can confirm this, is not the long hours. It's, it's not the prep every week to uh, give the best sermon of your life on Sunday. Um, the biggest problem is the deep, intimate, interpersonal relationships we have and must necessarily have in the church. And for that, your own love will not suffice. What we need is a divine infusion of the love of God. Because I naturally um, don't love people. And so I told God, uh, when I was called to be a pastor, I said, "This this is not right. You know it. You can't call someone like me into the pastorate. I know what it takes. I watched my dad for, you know, so many years. And uh, the Lord said, that's all right. I'll take care of it. And he brought me to a church where the sign proclaims where love lives. Remember that, Raj? And the Lord said, see that sign? I'm going to make that a reality in your life. And he has. And it hasn't been... Anything I could have imagined, it's absolutely transformational, divinely transformational. You know, when uh, when the Apostle John, we're going to be in 1 John, by the way, when the Apostle John was an old man in Ephesus, he had to be carried to the church in the arms of his disciples. And every time he spoke in the church, he usually said, no more than this, little children, love one another. After a time, his, his disciples got a little irritated to hear the same thing over and over. And they said, Master, why do you always say this? First of all, John said, it is the Lord's command. And secondly, if only this be done, it is enough. Of all the apostles who wrote letters that were eventually included in our Bible, it is John who majors on love. John's focus in his letter seems to be to get his readers to understand that loving one another is the most important thing in the Christian life. The argument seems to be that if we're truly loving one another as we ought to love one another, We are fulfilling the greatest commandment, to love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, the Lord Jesus told his disciples in the upper room that the best evidence to a watching world that they belonged to Christ was that they loved one another. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Their witness to the grace of God and the authenticity of the message would be demonstrated in the love they had for one another. The scriptures tell us this. When all is said and done, three things will endure. Faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love. So let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. And would you stand with me as I read the Scriptures for us? This is, uh, I don't know if you have this tradition down here, but uh, I'm starting a new one for you, Dan. 1 John chapter 4, starting with verse 7, we'll read through verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. John teaches us many things throughout this little book, what it means to walk in the light of God, what it means to abide in Christ, what it means to live loving God and not the world how to tell if your faith is is real or inauthentic, how to test those who claim to speak for God, how to identify false teachers, and a lot of other things. But through this whole letter runs this golden thread of love. And three times in this letter, John takes a moment to highlight love. And here in chapter 4, he begins his final full discussion I think he does this for a couple of reasons. First, because the Bible Bible reveals that, that God is love. And second, because love is a true test of real Christianity. When someone claims to be a Christian, the first thing to find out is, do they love the brothers and sisters? You know, anyone can say, I love God. It's a different thing to say, I love Dan because God is love and because we who have been born from above partakers of the divine nature in whose hearts the love of God has been poured out through the Holy Spirit then as Christians we must necessarily have the same kind of heavenly love our father has throughout this passage as in the rest of his letter, when John is giving his readers a command or letting them know how real Christians behave, he uses the present tense. Um, It denotes continual, habitual action. In other words, he's saying, as it were, beloved, let us be presently, continually, habitually loving one another. Christians, real Christians, spontaneously love one another. You know, when the Word of God says something once, that's, we should perk up our ears, right? When a Word says it twice, we better really pay attention. (laughs) But when the Word of God says something over and over, as it does here in this letter, we really ought to focus our hearts and minds on what He's saying. John begins this thread in chapter 2, he develops it in chapter 3, and here in Chapter 4, he gives the final summation. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Beloved. Literally, divinely loved ones, let us be loving one another because you are loved. Let us be loving one another. I think, first of all, that John is saying that if we are children of God, we're going to reflect His nature, just as your own children, for better or worse, reflect you, right? As divinely loved ones, we have partaken of the divine nature that is love. He makes a statement that everyone who loves is born of God. The, the 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 grammar here indicates a a past action with continual results so we might translate that phrase as and everyone who loves has already been born of god so the evidence of being born of god the proof that we know god is this love that we have for one another secondly i think john's trying to convey a truth that we all find We find throughout all of the Bible, he begins by encouraging his readers to love one another, and then he says that the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In other words, not loving one another is a sure sign that you don't know God. And I think there, in this past two years, we've we've had sort of a, a graphic demonstration of that. Is it? well, it's my, not my job to decide who, is, who knows God and who doesn't. But a lack of love is a real tell. Knowing God must result in being a loving person. If you can know God and not be loving, then we'd have to throw out verse 8 because that says if you don't love, you don't know God. So we can be sure that the person who knows God will be a loving person. But if that's so, if the one who knows God is spontaneously a loving person because God is love, then why does John command them to be loving in verse 7? Beloved, let us love one another. In other words, why command a person to love if he's been born of God and cannot help but love. If God is love, and love is an outflow of his divine nature, then why is John commanding them to love one another? Um, Seems to be a contradiction. Why tell someone who can't help doing something to do it? Or conversely, why does the Bible command us to do things we cannot naturally do? Things like loving your enemies, or doing good to those who hate you, or blessing those who curse you, or an even greater conundrum from the Apostle Paul when he tells the Ephesians in chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and then in chapter 5, commands them, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. How does a dead man raise himself? How, how, How do we reconcile this apparent contradiction on the one hand? As unbelieving, unregenerate people, we're dead. There's no possibility of us responding to God. On the other hand, we're commanded to awake and rise from the dead. How does that happen? Well, there's only one really true possibility. You find a clue in Philippians 2, 13 and 14, where Paul says to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, because, or for, it is God who works in you, both the willing and the working for his good pleasure. The key to understanding this is the Word of God. You see, the Word of God grants the power of God to do what we could never do. As the writer to the Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active. It's working. The word of God that comes from God carries the power of God to create in us the ability to obey God. In other words, Paul seems to be saying you can work out your own salvation because God is already at work in you. You see, God is at work in us, and because he is at work, our working is divinely powered. It's the word of God that creates what it demands in the lives of God's people. It's the word of God that empowers dead men to take hold of the gospel and be raised to life. That's why it's not a problem for Jesus to say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then to say, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. My King James, early childhood, came in there, ye, you. If the command to come contains the very power by which the Father draws. In other words, the word of God is the means of God to carry out the will of God. The word of God is the means of God to carry out the will of God. Of God. As Paul reminds us in Romans, it's the very gospel of God that is the power of God unto salvation. And so the command, beloved, let us love one another, is the means through which God intends to make his word that says, everyone who is born of God and knows God, true. God has willed it that we be kept in love and loving one another by regular feeding on God's Word, obedience to His commands, to love one another. John Piper puts it this way, the Spirit of God fulfills the promise of God by use of the Word of God. So it's not a contradiction for John to teach that those who know God will be loving and to command them to be loving. He goes on to say, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The love with which we are commanded to love one another is no ordinary love. You know this. There are some people that are just unlovely to us. It's difficult to wrap our arms and embrace them. Right, my love is not enough what we need is the divine love of God his love is supernatural because it doesn't exist in this material world apart from God all other loves derive their meaning from God's love because the love of God is the defining love You know, we can say, I love ice cream, I love to fish, I love to hunt, or I love you. But for the most part, we don't mean what the Bible means when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This love is the kind of love that caused the Father to send his Son into the world to die for unlovely people like you and me. It's this love that sent his son to be rejected, abused, tortured, killed in order to bring us to God. It's this love that will not only cause us to love one another but to sacrificially lay down our lives for one another. To lay down our desires to do what we want to do in order to see that your brother or sister is made, is helped toward God. John's describing the kind of love that we ought to have, the kind of love that would pour out our own life for the sake of the gospel, for our brothers and sisters around us. So he gives us this word picture to help us and the word picture is the son of God coming into the world dying on the cross. That's that's a love we don't naturally have. In <laughs> as an as a uh, just speaking from my own experience, I don't think there's anyone here that I would naturally lay my life down for. How about you? It has to be divine. Otherwise, it's not real. The word picture is the Son of God coming into our world, dying on the cross, and we might have life through His death to be brought to God, to spend eternity with God, reveling in His love. So how can we say that we love God and, and have No love for our brother. Or how can we say we love God and have no heart for the lost, those who don't know Christ? No appetite for missions, no concern for those without Christ. His love is mission's love after all. It isn't the need that keeps me going back to Africa. It's God's love that has been poured out in my heart and then poured out into the lives of others. It's because I love God, and He loves those whom He's called. The love of God with which He loved us and sent His Son for us doesn't change when He gets into our hearts. It's that same love. It's that supernatural love. When the world looks at the church... When the world looks at PCB, say, do they see a love that can only be explained supernaturally? Or is this just one big affinity group? Because you all like the same thing, you speak the same way. You know, if 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 the pandemic didn't highlight anything else, it highlighted this. That we all have different, disparate, and often conflicting political views, social views, biblical views, and yet we're commanded to love one another. You know, I'm heartened when I look around here and see a lot of familiar faces. That's not always the case when I go into other churches. That means you guys have... uh, have had the divine love poured out in your hearts for one another. Otherwise, you wouldn't stay together. Because I know you all don't think exactly the same way. We have to lay down a lot of what we want for each other because we're the church, because we're the people God has shed his blood for, poured out his life on behalf of, our salvation. This is a love that tells me I've been born again. This is the love that will cause the world to see Christ and give glory to God. This is the kind of love that motivates missions and causes a heart to weep for those who are lost. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, at First, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. John goes on to say, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God with which he loved us and sent his Son into the world as a propitiation for our sins is manifested. It's made known by the same kind of sacrificial life poured out for others. It's not something we can work up under our own steam. It's not an attitude we adopt or a lifestyle we put on. It's a sovereign work of God in our hearts because he first loved us. We didn't love God until he melted our hearts, our stony hearts, with his love. We hated him, but that love conquered our hate, our hostility. All our thoughts were hostile to God. His love transformed our thinking. And because he loved us, we love others. Henry Martin, a missionary to India and Persia, said, The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we must become. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here again is that command that brings with it the power to obey in those who have been born from above. Again, it makes no sense to someone who's not experienced the love of God being poured out in their hearts. They'll have no capacity to obey. There's a great divide between the ought to and the want to, and it's only the Word of God that would bridge that divide. John says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Later on in this letter, John tells us that God is spirit. The implication here is that we can't see God. No one has ever seen God. If we saw Him as He really was, we would die. Until we reach heaven with a new body, a new set of eyes, God will remain invisible, but this, and here's the the glory of it, this invisible God has become visible in his people, the church. Ephesians 4 tells us that the church is the body of Christ, and the visible church exists to make the invisible God a reality in this world and how does the world see god if we love one another that's john's that's john's message in other words the revelation of god to the world exists through the love of the church someone once said that love is the strongest apologetic the strongest argument for the existence of God and the reality of Christianity. You know, as the second century A.D. began to unfold and Christianity had spread throughout the Roman Empire from east to west, north to south, increasingly Christians were objects of great suspicion and persecution from their neighbors and from the government. From their neighbors because they wouldn't go along in their old pagan lifestyles. From the government is because they wouldn't pledge allegiance, that is, call Caesar Lord. And so there was a lot of hostility in the world toward them. Wild rumors were circulated about what went on during these Christian meetings to clear the air, to defend the faith. There was a church leader in Carthage named Tertullian. He wrote a brief explanation of Christian practices, a a critique of the unjust accusations that had been made against them. In his work, he wrote at one point that these attacks were made out of jealousy because Christians displayed a character of life that their pagan neighbors did not possess. And then... He he wrote what, what they were saying about the Christians. He says, many put a brand on us saying, see how they love one another. That was the testimony of the church. See how they love one another. See how they are ready even to die for one another. Well, I'll take that accusation. <laughs> I'll take that critique. But that was the testimony of the church. And John says that if we love one another, then it is true of us that God himself lives in us, and that love is perfected in us. Which doesn't mean that we're perfect, but rather that his love has become complete in our heart. One commentator puts it this way, love is perfected in the sense that this love reaches its intended goal. And it's fully developed when it produces the fruit of loving action toward others. Bill Bright, who's a founder and chairman of Campus Crusade for Christ, tells a story about two law partners who hated each other. But one of them became a Christian, and he came to Bill, and he said, Now that I'm a Christian, what what should I do? I hate this guy. (coughs) Bill told him, Well, why not ask him, to forgive you and tell him that you love him. I couldn't do that, he said, because I don't love him. The lawyer had put his finger squarely on one of the great challenges of the Christian life. On the one hand, everybody wants to be loved. On the other hand, there are people we just can't love. Well, Bill knew this, and so put his hand on his shoulder, and he prayed with that attorney. The next morning, the attorney called and uh, related this story to Bill. He says, uh, he told his partner, I've become a Christian, and I want to ask you to forgive me for all that I've done to hurt you, and I want to tell you that I love you. The partner was so surprised, convicted on the spot, that he turned in turn, asked for forgiveness. And then he said, can you tell me how I can become a Christian? Dick Foth, who's an author, speaker, writer, says that love is the accurate estimation and the adequate supply of another's need. And, And what is your neighbor's greatest need? It's to know Christ. John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad, and one of the statements in there has motivated me um, for years. Love is helping people toward the greatest beauty, the highest value, and the deepest satisfaction, and the most lasting joy, and the biggest reward, and the most wonderful friendships, and the most overwhelming worship. In short, love is helping people toward God. That's the most loving thing you can do just as the most loving act in all of history brought us from death to life, from hell to heaven, from eternal damnation to eternal joy. John Stott remarked on this in his book, The Cross of Christ, that if we're looking for a definition of love, don't look in the dictionary, look at, the, look at Calvary. So how do we measure ourselves against this? How do we know that the faith we say we have is the faith we really have? How can we be sure that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit? John says it has everything to do with how you treat one another. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The way you treat the brother that you can see is proof of whether or not you delight in the God that you cannot see. John's not saying it's easier to love your brother whom you see rather than love, of, love God who's invisible. I think what he's saying that is that if you really love God, you really trust in him, delight in his word, cherish all that he has promised for you, then you will love your brother. You'll be so full of hope and joy and peace and love. It'll just flow out of you around to everyone that, that you touch. That, that, that love will fill you with a passion for God and his purpose in the world. And you will gladly spend and be spent for him. The way to know whether your claim to love the God you cannot see is genuine is authenticated by the way you relate to the people you can see. This has great significance, not only for those in the church, but for the cause of Christ in missions. If the love of God is poured out into our hearts, then that same love with which he so loved the world will operate in us in the same way. There's a missionary named Doug Meland he and his wife moved into Brazil's, uh, a community, a village of Brazil's full indians and they simply called him the white man, which was a derogatory term, much like Mzungu <laughs> in Africa. Ev- <clears throat> they, You see, they'd had a history of the white man exploiting them, uh, taking their land, um, uh, robbing burning their homes. After Doug and his wife learned the language and began to help the people with medicine and other ways, they began calling Doug the respectable white man. When they began adapting to some of the customs of the people, the Felino gave Doug greater acceptance and spoke of him as the white Indian, much like we've been called the white messiah. One day as Doug was washing the dirty, blood-caked foot of a very badly injured boy, Doug overheard a bystander say to one another, Who ever heard of a white man washing an Indian's foot before? They then started telling one another, Certainly, this man is from God. Not long after that, whenever Doug would go into an Indian home, it would be announced, Here comes the man God sent us. See, the way you treat the people around you is a good indication of whether or not you love the God who is invisible. Well, just to wrap this up, what is this love? What does it look like practically among us? Well, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. It's written on wedding invitations and other events but what is it really first of all he says if you can speak the tongues of men and angels you can become a martyr you can know everything you can perform all sorts of miracles but if you don't have love you're nothing you're nothing but a child beating an empty coffee can so what does that look like first of all love this supernatural love is kind patient sorry Love is patient, love is kind. The word here is actually a verb which means to act kindly. This isn't just a nice feeling. It's expressed with an action. Love simply put are acts of is acts of kindness. It's not it's not this fuzzy feeling you get inside. Eh, it might be part of it, but it's it's Doing something, it's an act of kindness. Might be um, another way to say it. Love, he says, is not jealous. It's not envious. It's not desiring what another has or displeased with the success of somebody else. Love doesn't indulge itself in petty feelings of jealousy when we see someone who's doing the same work we're doing, only better. Love does not brag. The, wor- the root of the word here means a windbag. Love is not a windbag. Always talking about yourself. Just if you want to see whether or not you're a windbag, just count the number of eyes in your conversation. How many times you say I? He says love is not arrogant. This is not this is someone who's impressed with his own importance. That's not love. Love does not act unbecomingly. Another word there would be indecent. Love is not indecent. That is, love doesn't do anything that would bring shame or disgrace to yourself, to those around you, to the church, to the God whom you say you love. Love does not seek its own. That is, love doesn't consider primarily what's best for me. You know, there's this saying, I just hate it. You do you, I do me. You ever heard that? More and more. You know? That's not love. It's so countercultural today when the emphasis is on what is you know, what's best for me. What do I get out of this? Love love is not provoked. The construction here indicates that love is not easily provoked. It's not easily stirred up to anger. It's not easily offended. Are you easily offended? You better take another look at your relationship with God. There were a lot of people who were easily offended in these past two years. Says something. About their relationship with God. If we're easily offended by what others do or say, if we find that people keep doing things that offend us, we need to look inside and not outside. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That is, love doesn't keep score, it doesn't add up the score. It Rather, love keeps short accounts. We need to keep short accounts with one another. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. That is, love doesn't rejoice when your brother messes up. Do you have a feeling of secret glee when you see someone you maybe don't like that much and they just make a mess of things? Uh Uh-huh, got what he's got, karma, right? Love rejoices with the truth, because the truth always reveals something about the love of God. Love bears all things. It's, it's, it's a word that means you endure. These past two years have been a real test of endurance, of enduring love. It also means, it's, it's a word that indicates, it, it covers, it shelters, it sustains by covering. Um, it conveys the idea of bearing something negative so as to cover or protect your brother for the sake of love. A similar idea comes from Proverbs 17, 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter uh, separates friends Or 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. The bearing here is for the sake of love. Love, he says, also believes all things. Love is not ignorant or simple-minded. Rather, in the absence of any evidence to the contrary, you believe the best about one another. Love hopes all things. Hope that is grounded in the sovereignty of God. For the good of those who love Him, He works out all things. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Hope is hope precisely because God is God. We don't hope in our circumstances. We don't hope in money or the economy. We don't hope in political situations. We don't hope in build back better. We hope in God Himself, who's faithful and eternal. Love endures all things. The word is hupomone. This is to persist in steadfast love in good times and in bad times. Our circumstances don't determine our attitude or actions with respect to love for one another. Ultimately, love is a commitment to stand with one another, whatever the circumstance or situation, regardless of how we feel. And finally, Paul says, love never fails. Love never fails. My love fails. Your love will fail. But God's love never fails. It is eternal. That's how we know it's real love. Little children, love one another. And by his love, display God's glory in the world. Let's stand and pray, shall we?